Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Join me once again is Mr. Chris Stashu. I don't know if you guys know this, but studying stuffed animals is just as good as studying live ones. That's true. Also back in the booth is Mr. Spencer Parsons. I love me some taxidermy. On this episode, we are talking about Wojtek Janssi's The Cassandra Cat, also known as When the Cat Comes. The film is a fairy tale about a little city which lives under the protective eye of Oliva, played by Jan Berik. When he was young, he almost ran away with the circus, which featured an unusual act, a cat 
which could show people their true colors, literally. We'll be discussing this and a lot more on this episode. We'll also be spoiling the film as we go along. So if you haven't seen the Cassandra Cat, turn off the podcast and come back after you have. We will still be here. So, Chris, what did you think of the Cassandra Cat? Maybe this was intentional, but the last time I spoke with Spencer and Mike at the same time, we were talking about another Wojtek Yasny film a couple years back with all my compatriots. And I had never seen that film either. And so now, you know, if you had asked me, what do you think of this movie? And this had been the first time I'd ever seen a Wojtek Yasny film. I would probably be a little bit more kind of not confused, but searching maybe for the point of the movie i feel like after having spent a lot of time preparing for all my good countrymen two years ago and kind of keeping that movie in the back of my mind i feel like i appreciated this movie a lot more than i would have if i had been watching it kind of a la prima with nothing else ever kind of behind me but again i'm a guest on this show you and i are friends mike so i think it's almost impossible to not have some experience with these kind of movies at this point (laughs) so That all being said, I enjoyed this movie a hell of a lot. I think that it does kind of occupy this weird area of the world, which is live action fairy tales that are original fairy tales, not like an adaptation of a Grimm Brothers story. But I think we can talk about kind of some of the influences that are there. As a live action fairy tale, a subgenre of films that is not necessarily the largest, especially with Western audiences, I think it works rather well. And I think it's pretty charming. I think there's a little bit of kind of maybe cultural confusion at some point with some of the things that are going on that maybe need a little bit more explanation or maybe cultural explanation. But I think outside of those maybe kind of minor quibbles, it's an interesting film. It's a fun time. And it's definitely... Tonally, very different from the last Wojtek Yasny film I saw. That's for sure. Spencer, how about yourself? Yeah, I have, I guess, a similar uh, experience with this film. But I I will say I I really love it after watching through a, a few times to prepare for this. And I love All My Good Countrymen. On the whole, that one's a, a bigger, more rewarding experience for me as a film. Uh, but I, I find this one really delightful. And the maybe more muted kind of social criticism that he was able to get away with in this film in the Czech Republic at that time comes across in some really, really interesting ways. A lot of the way that this story is structured and sort of allegorized, there is a lot of critique of the government, I think, smuggled into, you know, this kind of fairy tale movie that's mostly about children. And that way, it reminds me a bit, even though it's a very different mode, it reminds me of those like 1990s Iranian films that would be about children, but had like heavy allegorized critique of the Iranian government and that particular regime. And if you kind of know how to look for it, you can find a lot. So it's interesting to me on a, on a few different levels. You know, there's one, just the kind of larger notions of truth that the movie is teasing out through all of this. And then also some of, you know, without having like a very deep knowledge of Czech culture at that time, still being able to pull out some of this really fascinating uh, kind of cultural critique that was, uh, you know, quite dangerous. And ultimately for this director was carried out in his career at, at a high personal cost. So this, this is a really fascinating film. I really, I really love it. 
it's interesting to watch this after All My Good Countrymen because, I mean, chronologically, we're watching them in reverse. This comes out five years before. And like you mentioned, Spencer, it's like a very quietly confrontational film, at least for the government at the time. But then, boy, the difference that five years makes. Holy cow, right? Oh, my good countryman is like in your face. I mean, the title alone of the movie gives you an idea of where it's going before it even opens. They're they're very good, like 1A and 1B of one another, because they're talking about, I feel like they're talking about the same thing, right? I, I think so. Well, talking about the same thing and having some of the same actors, though, cast in different roles. It was interesting, you know, you in both of them, you have a figure of more of a government official and you've got his lackey and then in this one it is have the same thing as well you have the government official who's the mayor i believe in this case and then you've got his lackey going on and then you have the school teacher who's trying to do the right thing and really help the kids out and then yeah when it comes to you're talking about iranian films the way that the kids are really used as like the stand-in for the Czech people, I thought was a really great thing. When you can't use the people, use the kids until you use the people in your next movie. Vladimir Mensik as the, because he kind of plays the same character in this movie as he did in All My Good Countrymen is without a doubt, one of my favorite people to just watch on screen in these kinds of movies. He's amazing. I totally agree. I, I this this is a screen actor that is so little known, and he is just mesmerizing and so much fun. Man, both of these. Every scene that he's in is better because he's in it, and it's this weird energy that he brings. Of like, I think he's in all my good countrymen. He's written as simple man in this movie it's more of a lackey he even admits it himself like a bootlicker so it's a different kind of character but it's that same it's just shaded a little bit less in this movie in all my good country i think it's shaded pretty darkly because he's the one who dies with the whole thing with the chicken right oh yeah with all the feathers and stuff i'm remembering that correctly yeah yeah the blood poisoning yeah yeah okay yeah because that's like super sad in that movie and there's a they kind of touch on it in this movie, but again, given that it's a fairy tale, I think they're like, let's not, let's maybe not go full Grimm Brothers here. <laughs> like, you know, people getting their toes cut off and thrown down wells and stuff. Like, it's it kind of shies away from that, thankfully. Yeah, and this is very much set up like a fairy tale. We even have a Once Upon a Time. We have this omniscient narrator, Oliva, who's played by Jan Warrick, who he is it's he's an interesting character because not only is he an actor but he also helps out with writing and so he gets a i think he gets a co-screenwriting credit on here and he has like 30 some credits as a screenwriter and a lot as an actor as well there's a great little documentary about yanzi that we'll talk about in a little bit here but he would come in and be like okay let's work on the dialogue and really worked on his own stuff because he's got the bulk of the narration he's there at the beginning showing us everything it's very jimmy stewart from rear window he's got this little spyglass and he's kind of taking us around the town and showing us all of the people showing us a lot of their foibles showing us the couple who aren't really a couple they're both having an affair one of them being mensnick as skulk i think his name is but him and the I think it's the wife of Vladisnil Brodsky, who plays Robert, the school teacher. And we get a lot more of that later on. We see the guy who's kind of hanging out. He'll pretend that he's lame and 
comes into town and he's running into town. And then as soon as he gets to the main sidewalk, he starts to move his leg. Very funny. There's the guy who doesn't want to work in the fields and it gets that piggyback ride from the woman out there. And we're just seeing like all of these different characters that he is introducing us to through his little device that he has. And I really, I love this character. He's so much fun. It's very literary. I mean, the way it starts this, the film, because it, like you said, it's very much a framing device. It kind of doesn't, I wish it was more throughout the film because he kind of takes a back seat once he's there because it's the intro of the movie. And then I guess kind of towards the end, he shows up again and does kind of the same bit. And then right at the end of the movie, he closes it. But I wish that he had kind of been talking to the audience more throughout because I think it kind of reinforces the dreamlike omniscient, like nothing bad is really going to happen in the story quality. Cause that's kind of the way it's framed. I think. Cause like you said, it's a fairy tale. How bad can things really happen in a fairy tale? Again, <laughs> non grim brothers stuff. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Hans Christian Anderson stuff is not super duper dark. I don't think uh, there's oh, some darkness. Is it? Okay. I, I, yeah. I, okay. Yeah. Yeah. He's less known for that than the grim. Yeah, brothers when are. the little mermaid comes up on shore, it's as if she was stepping on glass every step that she takes with those legs. So yeah, there's a price that you pay with each gift okay. comes a curse. Yeah. And okay. She, she dies. You know, it's not the Disney version. She just she does not get the prince at the end in the Hans Christian Anderson. Yeah, and I think Anderson also did um The Little Match Girl, which is one yes. of the saddest stories Real. ever. <laughs> just total brutality. See what I know about Hans Christian Anderson? Very like I said, like I don't I was not aware that his stuff was that dark. Mostly it's Grimm Brothers stuff that I kind of associate with darker fairy tale folk. I guess Grimm Brothers might even mean more folklore. And that's kind of the thing, like, right? Like this movie also kind of verges on folklore too. Yeah, they're they're sort of they are actually more collectors of of folklore than, you know, sort of proper authors of any of those tales. They're the you know, they they put together what became, uh, you know, sort of authoritative versions of folk stories for which there were many versions out there at the time. Yeah. And then they, they went with the, the folktale style, which they become sort of fairy tales for us and then told to children. But like one of the reasons why they're so, you know, dark and, and everything is they're folktales first. They're not necessary. Those stories are not necessarily for children when Grimm brothers could collect them. It's just like one of those quirks of culture that you know folklore becomes bedtime stories for kids but that that's that's like kind of interesting factor here because the, the that early sequence where he where we're setting up all the different people in this kind of voyeuristic manner you know looking through the little glass and setting up everybody it's really interesting because um uh, the first time that i watched this i i was kind of so taken with a lot of the visual elements that and and you know i was picking up allegory and stuff but there was almost no plot for me whatsoever on my first pass through this film. And it, it was on repeated passes that I recognized, oh, wait, no, this does have a plot. It's just that the plot enters 35 minutes into the film. After we've had a lot of table setting for, you know, our characters and the nature of our allegory, which to go back to your point, Chris, is a very literary kind of conceit, you know, that that's, that's a, a more literary or somewhat staged dramatic way of telling a story than we're used to and sort of a lot of our Hollywood way, but it's, it's actually a kind of storytelling structure that I have to say, I really, I really love and respond to every time I get it because it is, it is kind of beautiful and useful to simply follow people in a way that's not structured by what do they want? How are they going to get it? What's in their way? All that kind of stuff. 
until you know enough about everybody for that to kind of matter. And especially in this more fairy tale and abstracted environment, building up to that point where practically in the middle of the film, suddenly a plot can arrive. It, I think it's more rewarding for the kind of thin plot that the movie ultimately has, which is really fun. Well, and I think what's interesting and, and the, the kind of point that you make is it is very literary. I mean, books books and stage, I think, let the characters breathe a lot more. And obviously, yeah. when you're unhindered by, I guess, at least with literary, you're unhindered by budget or financial obligations to kind of be able to execute this in reality. You really are just like, all right, I'm going to let the characters breathe and I'll get to know these characters. And I... In this day and age, I, I mean, I'm not saying I didn't always appreciate it, but I feel like I appreciate it more in film now because it feels like any more now, especially in Western film, long form character storytelling is almost entirely situated to television. And so seeing it in film form and a film that goes, yeah, this is an hour and 40 minute film, but ostensibly an hour and 10 of it are the plot and 30 minutes of it are kind of getting you there. I appreciate that. Cause like, that's a very metered way of telling a story and Yasni. I mean, we talked about it in my good countrymen. He really has a good sense of the story progression and having a kind of a hold on it. Even when, like you mentioned, Spencer, it might not seem like anything is really going on. He's just kind of giving you all these little subtle pushes in a direction to know, like, this is where it's going to go eventually, just so you know, like, and just preparing you for that. Chris, I figured out why you thought Hans Christian Andersen was a little bit nicer. That's because of the delightful Rankin and Bass film called The Daydreamer that we spoke about years ago. Yes. So. Oh, right. <laughs> I couldn't imagine that little blonde Dutch boy could write anything so foul. And he said he wouldn't. He said he wouldn't. He told those puppets, he's like, I love you guys so much. And then he's like making them into these terrible creatures, of course. Go figure. Just imagine how Jack Guilford must have cried his eyes out as little Paul O'Keefe as Hans Christian Andersen or Chris, as he was called through the film. When he, when he found out the truth. Oh, no. You're telling me that the Little Mermaid dies? He was sort of notoriously ugly dude who probably also, I think it's pretty well established that he was gay. And so the place that he could find in, in Danish culture at the, at, at the time was writing these stories for children, but they're very dark because in many ways his life up until this point was very, very dark. And eventually he became quite celebrated within his lifetime. And there was like a big meeting between him and, and um, uh, Charles Dickens, who was a big fan of the work, but somebody that led this this quite depressing life and filtered it very much into these fairy tales, which now, you know, you know, we, we misrepresentedly we positive. I feel <laughs> yeah, now. exactly. I feel like Disney has been lying. OK, shocker. <laughs> I know shocker. the ugly duckling was a swan all along. Oh my God. So, what you're saying is if Han Christian Andersen wrote the story, maybe at the end the cat would die because, you know, probably. Well, the original cat did die. Yeah, I was saying a cat in this did die, I guess. Yeah, because we find out Oliva tells this story to Robert's class about how he, when he was younger, like I said before, he kind of ran away with the circus. He fell in love with this girl. There was a cat that 
wore sunglasses and he was told not to remove those sunglasses because when he does, that cat reveals everybody's true colors, literally their true colors. And then all of the people got together in the town and killed this cat. So those kids now know what's going to happen to this poor cat if the townspeople get their hands on it. So they want to protect this cat like nobody's business. There we go. That that's essentially the plot. Once it comes in, uh, when the when the cat arrives, uh, as, as it were, in this in this show, and the uh, the glasses come off, revealing the true colors. That is our inciting incident for what plot there is in the film as a a sort of battle. Not you know we have distinct characters, but this is much more of a collective you know kind of plotting where it's the the group of children against the adults with one adult chiefly on the children's side. And he's more or less presented as the biggest character protagonist to carry some weight, but this is not at all a single protagonist movie. It's more like he's our vehicle for carrying us through a a conflict between the children and the adults. And it was nice to see Vlastimil Brodsky as the hero of this piece, because he's the villain of... I mean, one of, I guess, again, speaking of collectively in All My Good Countrymen, he's probably, I think, the worst of all of the villains in that movie or kind of the the most, I guess, the clinical of them. So it was interesting to see him here as the sympathetic character, the sympathetic teacher to the children. You know, he goes on this long diatribe about how, you know, the the thing I mentioned with my intro about the the dead animals and the live animals, and that's not okay. And that's not that's not the case because the headmaster says, you know, oh, dead animals are just as good as a live one. That's like, okay, but there's that weird there's this weird thing where this this town is known for their taxidermy museum. They mentioned that in at the beginning, kind of out of nowhere, and then they never really come back to it either. It feels like Yuri Sovak as Carol, the uh, the mayor, or you call him the headmaster. He's the headmaster the school, I guess, okay. but he seems to be like ever present everywhere. He, yeah, he must be very busy. And I saw in this documentary that he's basically supposed to be an allegory for Antonin Novotny, the uh, president of Czechoslovakia at the time, so who was actually a friend of. Yancey's, who allowed him to get away with some stuff from time to time. He was kind of seen as a, a pet of Novotny's. So, and he managed to get out of some trouble because of that. And that's probably why he was allowed to do a lot of this criticism of the government pretty openly as he's going through here. Yeah, again, not as open as all my good countrymen, but that's also a victim of the Prague Spring. The level of uh, philosophical argument over the nature of truth that's carried out throughout the movie positions one of those ideas of truth as dead, you know, that the the taxidermy stands in for authority's version of truth and that it's got to be stopped, it's got to be dead, it's not evolving. And then the children are dealing with another version of of truth, which is that it is evolving and growing and that it's, you know, that different people can have different kinds of truths. So like, you know, one of the things about the taxidermy and the and, and the deadness of it is that it's there's only one way to see this. And of course, with a dead thing, there is only one way to see it. I like how that allegory works out. And, you know, one of my favorite exchanges after we've already had uh, no living animal is as much alive as a formerly living one that's been stuffed. Then later, there's this moment of for there's only one right path is there's only one truth, right? And the other guy says, especially if it's your truth. 
which is really nice in setting setting up the the conflicts for the rest of the movie. And then there's another just right after that. There's another moment where one of the children says, "I don't like my daddy, but I won't write that down because he'll beat me." During one of the movie's most beautiful and simple kinds of effects, the children about to sit down and draw, and we have I think it's a rear projection gag through the paper. Uh, you know, that, that like what they're about to draw are these little movies that they see on the paper that prompts one of the kids to say, I don't like my daddy, but I won't say it. And of course, in that moment, also connecting art making and the filmmaking to a certain idea of truth, you know, a dissident art making as a dissident activity here. Well, and you bring up the path and there's a literal path inside of that school, which I found fascinating that there's the hallway and it's got a red line, you know, color is going to be very important to this movie, but we've got a red line going down the center and the kids have to stay on one side. And I don't know if it's the adults on the other or the people coming from the other way, but I think it's one, it's like one way, you know, like going and coming type thing, like at an airport, I think that's the way I interpreted it. Well, I found it interesting that at one point, headmaster is just like you have to go to the right and then the way that brodsky's standing there robert's standing there he's like oh this way and he points to his right and i was just like well that's interesting because his right is your left and your left is his right but you know go to the right you know really embrace those right-wing politics whoa what is that what this is about (laughs) i think i think one of one of my favorite kind of like and there's like these weird moments where Yasni kind of just lets you as the audience kind of pick up what's going on because he doesn't find the need to force feed everything. The scene where the uh, the janitor, I guess, Vladimir Mensik comes in and he's got the, the stork and he's running around the room with it. And it keeps showing the shot of the headmaster's wife, the headmaster slash Robert's mistress, because he's she's getting with both of them. And then the headmaster, and every time it cuts the headmaster and Vladimir Mensik looking at him, he stops smiling. And everyone else, he's like smiling and having a good time. And that, again, it's just like, Yasni is does a really interesting thing in this movie where it, there's a lot of close-ups too. There's a lot of close-ups throughout this movie, which as two people who just recently rewatched Silence of the Lambs will tell you, utilizing close-ups, Mike, would is something that if you do it really well, it's really effective. And it really helps you kind of understand and maybe get in the character's mind a little bit and kind of really be able to put yourself in the character's shoes. And they do that a couple times in this movie. Yasni is really good at using close-ups effectively and not kind of beating you over the head with, this is what you should be interpreting from this scene. And that scene where he's running around the room with that stork, I think it's just another kind of really interesting look at the kind of the dynamic between those who are in power and those who aren't. And I guess the expectation between the two. I love that moment that him running around and yeah, the way that his smile fades and then comes back up and then fades. So good. I really just, that performance is so nice. Also to your point about close-ups, and I'll just, I'll just run with the Jonathan Demi connection, even though I don't, I don't think that Demi's, you know, super influenced by Yasni. That's not my argument here. But I think that there's there's a similarity in their in the work in having a beautiful tension between these meaningful close-ups and then really uh, well done blocking for wide shots. There are a number of wides in this movie using the widescreen frame where you have a whole lot of different people talking. And Yasni has you looking at each part of the frame to each person as they speak in a way that is you know, really great and intense. And he does some movements of people through space, setting them up to talk so that it's like you notice the movement 
And then they have their line. And it's it's almost like, you know, the audience is doing the editing to the close-ups within these these wide shots. And so there's a, there's a beautiful tension there. And that's one of the things I really love about Demi is that sense of, yes, he can use those close-ups to bring you in so so intensely to the characters, even to the point of, like in Silence of the Lambs, they're looking directly at the screen at you because they're looking directly into the lens. But then there are also, there's, there's an attention to the spatial relationship between people, this kind of collective. And it's, it's one of the things in Yazni's work that I just, I find, oh man, that, uh, that kind of old school Eastern European, like film school practice of here's how you stage a scene. I got, I got to say as a film professor, this one's going into the mix for, you know, lecture and showing clips because this is, this is like really truly high end masterful work for like a very, flatly, uh, you know, like almost disarmingly flatly organized widescreen frame of a whole lot of people. But then there, there are little bits of movement. And when everybody speaks, it's it just like can draw you in, especially like in that earliest scene after the, the stork has been initially shot and we're still kind of introducing characters and of the way that they all speak to one another in a wide shot there really gives a great sense of this community. That's a great scene as well. Yeah, because it you get the sense that everybody already knows one another, obviously, because this is a rather close-knit town. But it gives you, the audience, kind of the sense of being in there with them and not feeling – you feel a part of it and not outside of it. Which, you know, again, say what you will about director's ability to do that or even a need to do that. But with this kind of story, giving you that intimate kind of closeness to the characters, I think, helps really establish the relationship. And like you mentioned, there – established relationship there does come some tension with that so it's i i agree with you yasni is ex- extremely effective in that regard i'm sure there are people at home that are yelling at their podcast right now saying he didn't run away and go to the circus it was a shipwreck so this whole backstory of all of uh being a sailor and sailing with the different crew i think they were greek or something yeah um, greek ship yeah yeah and so and he I think he had also been to France as well. I can't remember, but like, it's interesting because Yanzi himself had traveled around quite a bit, even at this point in his career, he was very celebrated. He made a lot of documentaries, state sponsored stuff. He was sent over to China and it was him and Kachnya. They worked together on a lot of stuff and he was what promoted to, I think, major at one point or lieutenant so that he would be in a higher ranking position when he spoke with the Chinese and was making this movie and had all this praise lauded on him. He knows that his movie was shown to the queen of England. He got to travel to France. He got to meet with uh, some Italian filmmakers. And that was kind of like his reward for doing all this stuff was being able to talk to these different filmmakers. So you can see a lot of these influences on his work. He's just, this is no walk in the park. I mean, even though it is a rather simple story, you know, just being able to encapsulate it as far as the way that the cat sees people, yada, yada, yada. But my gosh, there's a lot more going on in this. And especially that suddenly we go from pretty straight ahead narrative into this wonderful mystical world with these colors and dance numbers and long stretches without dialogue. I mean, it feels so different as you move into this film, but getting you up to that point, you're still just like so enwrapped with these stories of what's going to happen with these characters, because they're very, very compelling. Every single person that you meet in this town, you want to spend more time with. 
And to your point there, they make it a point of having all the characters in that scene with the cat on stage. Cause that again, like we, like you just said, setting it's, it's, you got to take 30 minutes to set this up. Like you, you have to, and then, and then you get to the scene where everything kind of comes undone, but not really comes. Everything starts to change very quickly for everyone in the town. And man, I, you know what, for a movie that starts the way that this one does, that scene is just beyond impressive. Uh, Technically just, I, I couldn't, I good Lord. That's all I could say. It's really spectacular. And the lead up to it is, is great. I don't know that this is a conscious, it, it, this consciously influenced Mulholland Drive, but I have maybe some evidence that Lynch might have seen this movie at AFI. Frank Daniel, or Frantisek, and I'm totally butchering his first real name, was fled Czech Republic or Czechoslovakia at the time after the Prague Spring and the Soviets moved in. And he was, he was at AFI and was one of Lynch's mentors. And Seriously, there are two there are two big things from this sequence that I think are very readily comparable to Mulholland Drive. One being the kind of the look of the jitterbug contest and the way that all the people running around in their meticulously created, colored and made up, you know, colors, their true colors, the way that they move around, the way that they dance and everything is very much like that jitterbug contest out of the the beginning of Mulholland Drive. But then also the whole sequence as well, yes, there, there are certain story tropes that go with this, but there's a lot that is like Club Silencio uh, and the way that the announcer is doing things. And also the, the, the sort of, I don't know, not to get, I'll just go ahead and be pretentious here and call it the Brechtian idea of showing you the nature of the magic trick uh, while also giving you the magic of the magic trick. So there's that lengthy scene of, of the costumes and all the people in black who are going to make the 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 effects work in this next sequence so beautifully. You're seeing them all get into black costumes. So you know, before it starts, how the magic trick is done. We're showing the mechanism of the magic trick before doing the magic trick. And then the magic trick, you know, through some other filmic kinds of things that are more magical, the magic trick is still a kind of thing where we know how it's done. And it's like that much more magical for it, you know, like in Mulholland Drive, where He's announcing no I banda, you know, there is no band and telling you that it's lip sync. But nevertheless, the, the way that the characters sort of see and respond and their lives are changed and the plot is changed at this kind of key moment, uh, not exactly in the middle of the film, but good ways in. If Lynch saw this movie and I'm, I'm betting he did, that he's, you know, he, he takes this influence and, and runs with it. But even if he's not influenced by it, even if he didn't see it, I do think that this is like an interesting movie to compare to Mulholland Drive, for instance, in terms of, you know, these central ideas of of like artifice that run through both movies and notions of like, what is a personal truth that you might learn that would, you know, from from a, a relationship to art that would, you know, sort of destroy or create your life, you know, as the case may be. And talk about a movie that I don't know if you could call it a fairy tale, but it has very dreamlike qualities. Absolutely. So that's for sure. I, I mean, maybe I don't know if I would consider it a fairy tale, but it definitely Lynch's stuff, I think, for the most part, is very dreamlike. Obviously, you know, as someone who's a fan of him, as I'm sure all of us are like his stuff, that's where it hues, obviously, for the most part. So on the side of fairy tale for Mulholland Drive, and I don't think the whole movie is necessarily fairy, fairy tale. But the but on the side of fairy tale and that the movie, conceit is right. 
there's so much color coding that goes with Wizard of Oz. And of course, Lynch loves the Wizard of Oz, but there's like very distinct kind of color coding at different moments. But then in addition, there's even that like Snow White and the Seven Dwarves kind of setting that they go to where they find the the body uh, in Mahala Drive. Sorry, spoilers on Mahala Drive. That's not the movie that you're listening to about, <laughs> but everybody knows at this point. But they go to that place. And, and then additionally, the costuming in those scenes, La- uh, Laura Elena Herring in that scene where they go out to the to this very Snow White and the Seven Dwarves looking amazing real apartment complex in, in Los Angeles. She's dressed to kind of evoke the, the Wicked Queen. You know, the color, you know, the colors of her costume in that scene are, are very, very specific to, to that kind of imagery. So I do, I do think that there are these fairy tale connections, you know, in, 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 in both of those movies. And again, you know, maybe this is just my theory really hit me hard in the middle of this film. And maybe again, it's just the, the constant dream life that is cinema that connects these kinds of things and not necessarily a specific influence. But I think this would be a terrific double bill with Mulholland Drive if you could go for that long. We know that Lynch loves doubling and that Varric is doubled in this as both Oliva, the man who's looking down and you know, some people call him a tramp and all this. And then he's also the ringmaster of the circus, which is amazing. Uh, it's one of my favorite lines in the movie where they say, is this a meeting of doubles or is it man- matter and antimatter? Right. <laughs> I love it. And he's like, I mean, it's basically... If Oliva had stayed with the woman, if he hadn't taken the cat's glasses off, he would be this guy. This this is the, his alternate future. That's that was my interpretation, which I think is the interesting one because again, it, it well it speaks to also kind of the nature of man, right? And what is what is Oliva's nature? His nature was to remove the glasses, but the magician is you know he's not willing to do that because that's part of the act you don't you don't do that they've said as much that's the one thing you don't do (laughs) is don't take the cat's glasses off why did you do it man that image of the cat with the glasses on is so killer i love it honestly anytime there's the cat like close-ups with the cat is just the funniest thing on the planet the little kid yasuka walking around with the cat just the his eyes it's like he's possessed anytime the, the cat and the best thing about the cat the cat looks pissed all the time. All the time. The cat yeah. has no interest in being in this movie. The cat is pissed that it is being held that way. And the cat does not want to be there. And every time you see the cat, it just looks really mad. Like, but this cat actor is not having a good time on the set. <laughs> no, but looks so cool with those glasses on. Oh my god, yeah. <laughs> Especially yeah. when he, when he's in the water fountain and there's that other cat with him and he's just like sitting there cooling out with the glasses on. It's just like, yeah. yeah Coolest cat good. around, man. All those people in the black outfits, it's just those are amazing when they're playing in the band on the back of the uh the truck that they all come in on, the big red truck and that our main female character, this new woman that comes into town, she's all wearing red. And I think she wears red throughout the entire movie, if memory serves. It's just, I love that, that they're already color coding her and that you get to see Robert just immediately taken with her. And that pretty soon they're going to be red together because that whole thing of the colors of love and they just look otherworldly like all of the other characters when they're in their colors they look really pretty darn cool but the red ones just stand out like they aren't even people anymore they seem almost like red silhouettes that effect is amazing and uh and knowing that it is it's basically makeup which they went to some trouble to get i mean he talks about going to 
Max Factor in Hollywood for the red makeup because they could do yellow, they could do gray, they could do purple. But some for some reason, what was available in Czech Republic at the time was not uh, it was not not best for the the red. So they did manage to get permission to buy this makeup. But that it is quote unquote only makeup and costumes. This is like one of the great old magical skills that now that we have so much so much that can be done digitally with movies, which I don't I don't want to dog on all the time, but it's just like certain of these kinds of really basic skills of putting on a mask or changing a costume or putting on makeup uh, when when we can do it in post in a color correction or when we can do CGI and that that becomes the automatic there is a layer of stuff that is so beautiful and so strange that was like the only game in town for filmmakers in the past and i think the that this this color is so beautiful and there are some parts that i spotted as a kind of you know, optical projector compositing of, of people as they're running around in the big, uh, in the big melee after the show. But for the most part, this is all on camera and it is just basic costume and makeup and some lighting uh, that's done. And, and again, I guess to the sense of, you know, if you look closely enough and you can see how the trick is done, it doesn't take away from the trick. There's that beautiful shot of them moving through that, that like kind of forest glade during the day when they're in the red, in the red costumes and makeup and you can see the sun hitting them. And if you look closely, you can see that there's really strong red light that's hitting into the shadow area on the ground and onto some of the leaves of the trees and everything. You can see that they've got these lights set up to increase the red on, on these two, but it does not take away at all. It's actually part of the overall like beautiful image. And like, if you're not thinking about it from the point of view of like, oh, those are lights. It's still just a beautiful that they're on this kind of path that's colored red around them as they're totally surrounded by green, you know, the, the, the green setting them off, you know, from the background. Just gorgeous stuff. That scene with the cat and kind of the melee and all that where they introduce this idea of coloring the characters and see, because again, you you know it's coming because they've mentioned as much like. Like we've said, Yasni does a great job of setting it up kind of coyly and being like, well, this is where it's going. Just so you know, here's your expectation. But when you first see it, it is arresting. It's very visually arresting. And like you've mentioned, Spencer, like they they really do a good job of making it by happenstance or just by, you've said, using practical effects. It looks so otherworldly on all of them. I mean, yeah, yellow and blue, they still look strange. And then purple and gray, it's like, oh, Jesus. Like, it's just every time you see it, it's Yasni does a good job of making sure that that is the most important thing in any scene is seeing these kind of like the way the colors are interacting with each other and the way that these two kind of, because you also have, it's technically three groups of people, I guess two groups, the colored people who have these color, I guess, color in their heart? Because that's the one thing I can't figure out. There there are normal people still. It's basically three sins and a virtue that are revealed through the colors. You have like with the yellow, it's the infidelity. With the purple, it's hypocrisy and lying. And, oh, and I thought this was really interesting to include as part of the overall allegory, careerism. This notion of careerism being part of the hypocrisy and lying I thought was actually, you know, quite important to the critique of the government. And in particular, you know, our favorite uh, our actor in this movie goes around in purple. Yeah, Vladimir Menzik goes around in the purple for a lot of it. And his character is this distinct lackey careerist sort of person who is upholding corrupt regime through his hypocrisy and his 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 grasping careerism. 
So, so all these colors and the gray, I'm trying to remember what the gray. I think they were liars and thieves, weren't they? Thieves. Yeah. Yeah. Thieves, thieves. And then there's love, you know, so it's, it's these three terrible qualities and then, and, and then love that are, they're sort of, you know, mixed, mixed together in here. And of course, yeah, love is all we need. Love is the answer, you know, all, all that, all, all those, those famous things. But the way that it's played out in this particular case, I think is, is really, really beautiful and arresting. Well, it's really smart because he gives us those rules twice. He gives them once through Oliva in the classroom talking about how this cat would see things and color things. And then he gives it again as the magician who's throwing out the different colored roses and, you know, well, be careful, you know, that gray rose, that's uh, you know, sign of thievery. And then the woman tries to throw it away and all this. And even before we get to see the colors, there's that long magic act where it's kind of scenes of the city and people being fed cake in this little Cornish hen and all this, and maybe another Lynch connection there, just all of these things that are going on. And it took me a little while until I realized that the love story was being played out by these figures, these shapes that are on stage. It wasn't until you see the, I think it's like a gray sweater with a white shirt underneath. And as soon as that man's head becomes a camera, I'm like, oh, okay. Because we saw Robert with the camera earlier on and he was shooting, quote unquote, shooting the stork with his camera while the headmaster was shooting the stork with his gun. And I really appreciate that suddenly it becomes, oh, this is now a story of the town. And you get to see how quickly the headmaster goes from just hysterical laughter. He can barely contain himself. He doesn't realize this guy behind him is like taking cigarettes from him and all this kind of stuff. And then, man, right away, he, he finally figures it out. And it's like, oh, this isn't funny at all. He becomes very upset as soon as I think it's really when his infidelity starts to get pointed out and his wife turns to him and she's just like, hello. (laughs) And then that Menzel is portrayed as being a dog. Like you get to see one of the figures walking around on all fours and it even has a wagging tail. It goes and fetches this arrow that instead of a gun, it's an arrow that gets shot, though there is a gun in the this sequence as well and again this goes on for a long time before the cat finally gets its glasses taken off and even then that beautiful shot of the woman in her red and up on that trapeze and looking out at the audience just gorgeous stuff yeah and the and the fact that for a lot of it yasni is using just black like just a pure black background is so smart and i think like you've mentioned spencer like the that when I was thinking about that, like it's so otherworldly. It's from everything that you've seen up until this point in the movie. And it's kind of, it's going to inform everything else you see throughout the rest of the movie in a lot of ways. But that scene is just like, take everything else out of this movie and just watch that scene. Technically impressive for the time, technically impressive period. It's just, that is a impressive scene from a technical standpoint. But then like you mentioned, Mike, that they're kind of micro telling the story within that scene is also very smart. Again, just just smart all around. Well, and we've had that telegraph to us too when he's meeting with the magician backstage before the show begins when he's got that iron on his head. Talk about a weird surrealist image, right? Just holding that iron there to help with this bump on his head from getting beamed by this uh, 
the door of a truck, that red truck. And he says, well, what do you want to see? Do you want to see Napoleon and Genghis Khan? And Robert's just like, ah, you know, I see that all the time. It's like, so at one point he's like, oh, I want to see myself or something. And then boom, all of a sudden this costume comes flying out from the back and it's his exact same sweater, his exact same shirt, his exact same pants, just hanging there, just this empty suit. And I was like, oh, that's really kind of cool. So I knew that it should be there. And then when I finally made that connection to the magic show, it's like, oh, okay. Cause I felt like a real dope and I had to watch it a few times going, how long has it been metaphor for the town? I'm going to connect to another movie here. And again, I don't think that this is necessarily an influence thing, but in terms of where things go and, and that this is the fair, that this is the nice fairy tale version and not necessarily the terrible fairy tale version. There's, there's something about this that is very much like Belatar's Burkmeister harmonies in the way that the stories work, that you have this, this whale sort of dragged into town and Burkmeister harmonies. And there's something about the whale and in particular the whale's eye that brings out a, a truth in the town that then ever afterward in the movie results in a full on apocalypse. Like people are kind of talking about how things are bad, but once the whale has arrived and there's this sort of like truth in it that they can't deal with, the apocalypse happens. And at this node of the film, after we've gotten all this storytelling and the fun of, you know, the, the fun of watching the town represented in one way on the stage. And then when the eye gets turned back on the audience, cat's eye you know versus the the whale's eye then there's then there's this this kind of not exactly apocalyptic but there is a sort of riot that occurs with everybody trying to get out and we have a brief moment of kind of quiet reset as everybody's discussing you know what is this what does this mean where is this going and then the rest of the movie is is carrying out this this kind of battle between the adults who don't want these truths recognized and the children who are going to save the cat and save the truth and its ability to see the truth in a way. I know we've talked a lot about the colors and how gorgeous everything looks, especially when the people start to have the colors and have the makeup and just the lights and all that. But even when it's not those parts, the color in this film and just the look of this film is gorgeous. Just really looks so nice. The first time I saw this film was on a just a beat to shit VHS tape, really nasty. And I'm so glad that Second Run is getting this restoration and able to share this because I hope that they also get to have some sort of theatrical release with this because I would love to see this on the big screen. This is one of those films that's it's as gorgeous of like as like umbrellas of Cherbourg. You know, just so stunning, so wonderful to look at. And you know, that's the first 40 some minutes of the film before the colors even hit. All my good countrymen had a lot of seasonality going on and the usage of like the seasons to show the progression of time and the progression of people and the way that they're interacting with one another and their kind of expectations in life. And I remember thinking as I was watching the beginning of this movie, like, man, like if it's just going to be this again, like I'm cool with that even. Cause again, like it is just, Yasni just has an eye for it. And again, and again, like let, let's not kid ourselves. Where they're shooting is beautiful in and of itself. Cobblestone streets, ancient, not ancient, but I guess it would probably consider it ancient, old style European, Eastern European architecture. Like it's a be- it's a beautiful city that they're shooting in. So that automatically lends the movie kind of that like fairy tale dreamlike quality. But then y- Yasni, just like you've mentioned before, Spencer, knows how to block a scene. He he understands 
the, how to use the camera to really give you a sense of space and a sense of the town and kind of how everybody inhabits and lives within the confines of the town. With color, there are different variations that he works by using different um, uh, environments. One of my favorite scenes in the movie, but and, and very much because of the, the color, is in that sort of literally green room before everybody's going on into the big show and he's got the iron up against his head. Though the way the light plays within that space, the kind of like beautiful blue green of it and, and how it's represented on the film and then restored here is, is really, really magical and definitely, yeah, up there with, uh, you know, great uses of color that we, we often think about like Umbrellas of Cherbourg or it made me think of the films by the Archers, you know, Colin Pressburger's uses of color. And and the balance between these more um, heightened kinds of moments of theatrical color, like that one, and then also the natural colors of the town square and how those work. Another one of my favorite scenes in the movie is another bit of just really simple, beautiful screen magic where those children who have the pictures of the cat, you know, on butcher paper are running towards the camera with these little paintings of the cat. And they're like little running paintings. It's, it's, uh, you know, animation at the same time as it, we know exactly what it is, but because of the color, because of the, the way that they contrast with the environment, that other shot that's in the same sequence as the little girl is painting on the window as we're looking out at that same courtyard that we've been seeing throughout this kind of, you know, beige courtyard with, um, the red painted figures, you know, on the, on the window in front of it. These really beautiful integrations of intense color with environments that are natural and that can't be completely altered, uh, but but are altered through, you know, these kind of magical selections. Uh, similarly, you know, obviously it's very green, uh, but the green becomes more magical with these people who are completely red moving through it. Reminds me a little bit of, oh man, I'm going up on the title. There's an amazing Agnes Barda film with... Uh, incredible fall colors at the end that uh that just like pokes up my eye but at any rate yeah some really masterful use of color uh, that i would love to see on a big screen and that this you know this transfer restoration is is just phenomenal and i i really would hope that that would you know raise the profile of of this film and of yasni as a director yeah, it's very unusual. I mean, he he had such a wild career. You know, he made films way past the Prague Spring, but he didn't make them in Czechoslovakia. You know, he he came back eventually, but there were a lot of years where he was making films in Austria and Germany and Canada. Canada. He had his long-term position in the United States. So, yeah, just wild, wild stuff. And we talked a little bit about that movie that was partially set in the U.S. and then partially set over in Czechoslovakia when we talked about All My Good Countrymen, kind of the, right. the follow-up. But, yeah, he definitely needs a lot more attention. I mean, just think about the scene where it's the group of purple people fighting the group of gray people and they're doing all that fighting without even touching each other just all the pratfalls and reactions as they're like throwing punches i love it the little michael winslow noises yes fantastic in the montage when it's like two three frames of just colors popping by or the people dancing so wild man Beautiful. And they told him not to do that because it was going to be too much with the color. And it's like, yeah, no, it's not too much. 
it was a little much for me personally. I was like, oh boy, like this is, it was one of those things where I was like, I- I'm not going to be the guy who said like, maybe put a seizure warning before this. But that was because it was just like red, blue and yellow, just flash, 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 flash. I was like, oh God, I looked, I did have to look away the second time I watched. I was like, this is a little much for me, but like, but it, but it serves the purpose of giving you this idea of like frenetic motion. And these people are just going nuts. If you think about what the story is really talking about, like if this actually happened in a town, like they would go apeshit. And so I I do appreciate that. Like, even though this is a fairy tale, it does still say like the conceit is, yeah, people would go crazy and we'll show you as crazy as they can go with within our universe, I guess, because, you know, they don't go as far as, you know, again, if you set this story today, I think it would be I can't even imagine That'd be horrifying, frankly. Well, I mean, to a slightly uh, documentary direction to make up yet another ball connection, Cave Zahedi's work is, or, you know, the rehearsal, which has just been on these kind of experiments in, in, in like these experiments in dealing with radical honesty or a radical artifice to bring out honesty. And Cave Zahedi's work, uh, like, for instance, the show about the show, you're really seeing his social life. Uh, his marriage, everybody around him, it it all is falling apart in a very spectacular way because of the overly truthful kind of behavior that he's committing himself to in making that film. And I think we're we're seeing a similar kind of story of like the the, the wages of truth and and both of the titles of this movie, the Cassandra Cat and When the Cat Comes, they're you know they're different sides of of the thing. Obviously, the idea, the the mythical idea of Cassandra you know, telling the the truths that nobody wants to hear. But I also really love the title of where When the Cat Comes, like thinking about it from fairly early on as like when the truth comes, what are what are we gonna get? How is that gonna be? And of course it it causes a lot of social unrest here. So before we watched All My Good Countrymen and before we did the audio commentary for it, I watched the documentary Life and Film, the Labyrinthine Biographies of Wojtek Janczy. And that's like an hour and 17 minutes. But I have to say that I actually got a lot more out of watching the Golden 60s episode about Janczy this time around, which I don't know why I didn't watch that before, but it is so rich and so packed with information about his life. I know it only goes up to... 1970, which is, you know, just post Prague Spring. So you get all of his early career. There's a nice, you know, some titles at the end to talk a little bit about his post career, which is when he was not making films in Czechoslovakia for a lot, a lot of years. But man, oh man, did he have quite a career, even up to just 68. And to see how long he had worked with some of these actors, I mean, Brodsky and Menzel, he had worked with them for a long time and God to see Brodsky, he just looked like a kid in what was it? Tuha, I think is the name of the film. It's just like, my God, he is just so young. That documentary is really terrific. A really amazing introduction to his work. An amazing introduction to the consistent, but also ever changing beauty of his work and the ways of, you know, repeating certain techniques which filmmakers have got to do cuz like if you can't you can't grab a technique and take it on to another movie like what what can you do you know but but seeing the work evolve and also getting this kind of that movie doesn't go too intensely into it but we start to get a little bit of a sense of this quasi mystical you know nature of his thought that comes out more in the in that interview that we read where he is he's he's really drawing things into 
you know, kind of astrology and, uh, and not necessarily like astrology in, in the sense that he's following that as a religion, but that these archetypes of astrology uh, and the notions of them really inform his kind of work and his sense of, you know, magically bringing things together. I find that that comes out uh, quite a bit in, in this particular documentary as well. Yeah, that little bit where Jan Warrick was like, oh, I've got throat cancer. I'm going to die soon. He's like, no, you will live 15 more years. And then he died 15 years later. <laughs> <laughs> or even like Novotny was just like, he's a poet and a madman. Let him alone. <laughs> right. Oh, so good. And, you know, the one thing that we didn't talk about, you know, there is the the two versions of Warwick in here. And there are a lot of times where he's on screen interacting with himself. Yes, they do a lot of like shot reverse shot to have that, but there are several times where he's on screen with himself and it looks fantastic. It looked really seamless for the time. Like it looks seamless period. Like not, we are, you know, for the time, but like, man, like it looked really like you would think that it was two actors, like twin actors. That's how good it looks. Like it, it's really that seamless, which is again, Yasni just has this really strong grasp on like just general filmmaking techniques. I feel like he's director with a capital D, right? We always talk about actor with a capital A, like classically trained versus just like, you know, someone who's just has that. I think Yasni probably just had it too, but you can really tell that Yasni just, his grasp of filmmaking is really strong. And I, again, as someone who, doesn't watch a lot of these kinds of movies very often. Like I said, Mike's show is kind of the show that pushes me to enjoy more of these kinds of movies and really broadens my personal horizons. I really appreciate that about him as a director because someone who has a grasp of filmmaking, like even if it's just a movie about a cat without its glasses on, it's still insanely compelling. One of the most compelling things I've seen all year. And I, you know, we watch between the three of us, God knows how many movies. But <laughs> it's like, it was just immensely compelling. Clearly for me, I would say for, for y'all as well, clearly it's a, it's just Yasni's ability to make even the most mundane thing really interesting and exciting and thoughtful even, again, with the use of like allegory and stuff, I think is just has to be constantly mentioned. I mean, in 2021, they reshowed this in Cannes for a reason. You know, I looked, I couldn't find like what people were saying last year. I just saw that they did it and they they showed it. I would like to know what people's reactions were seeing this last year to kind of gauge kind of like, because we're obviously very much contemporary audience watching this, but I would be curious, like other contemporary film watchers, like what, what is their kind of read on this movie as well? Because I would hope that this is, like you've mentioned, on its way to being more appreciated in a kind of broader film sense, at least Yasni, hopefully as a whole. I mean, I'm so glad that All My Good Countrymen is now out there as a Blu-ray release and just that people can see that a lot easier now is fantastic. I mean, watching... That little documentary about Yasni this morning, when it came to the shot of Brodesil on his bike and riding out into the distance with that voiceover of farewell, my good countrymen, I got goosebumps. And I was like, oh, I forgot just how great this film is. Oh, man, I hope more people see this. I've gotten really tired of masks because I'm a big horror guy. And like animal masks have been ruined ever, ever since... Uh like hipsters found them in the mid 2010s. And, and I, I guess, uh, you know, early in that cycle was uh, 
Adam Wingard movie. Where you're next. Uh, you're next. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, um, is he talking about your next? Because that's what I feel like. And I, I like I like your next pretty well. That's one of the ones I like better among. But man, the animal masks just started to show up all over the place in, in horror films and sort of ruined this really basic thing. But in All My Good Countrymen, Yasni has that magic of like how to use the masks. I mean, it, it's like he's not even like really trying to scare us or anything with the masks in, in that film. And yet I find that they're even more powerful than than like all those masks that attack you at the, at the end of the Wicker Man. And that's beautifully put together and like, you know, amazing with the editing and shooting. But this is at this whole other level where I'm like, how do you even conceive to do this? How is it all like, it's so simple and I know exactly what it is, but like, how does it work? And yeah, that the basics of that kind of mask work that he returned to in a few movies. And then I think, you know, we can find to some degree here, Yasni is just working at this, this other level or to go back to it, a story that he tells about the editing room where they stay, they did a screening of when the cat comes and somebody was like, why don't you have any shots of the close up of the cat in this scene? Because it's a beautiful, amazing scene, but, uh, but there are no close ups. And Yasni says, Oh, I guess we just didn't shoot them. And I'm, I'm glad it worked out. And then the, the DP says, no, we did shoot them. And they managed to find them again. And of course, every one of those shots of the cat, you know, truly are, magical and and i guess as like an editing room feat i think about that in in the sense that that like rule that i follow in the editing room when i'm editing is like certain kinds of shots you want to include them only when you need them if you possibly can and especially certain kinds of close-ups and whatnot and there's a part of me going oh it's all faded it all worked out that mystical side of yasni comes in where it's like no you don't want to start plugging those cat shots in until everything else works perfectly and they can add exactly the right amount of more magic than they would have if you'd started with them. Could have been too much. It could have been overdone. And it, and it might not, it wouldn't have probably been as effective if they had tried to work around it as opposed to like working it in there seamlessly. Because again, it, everything about this movie feels so seamless. Few film directors have a have a wrangle on the basic filmmaking techniques like Yasni does, like genuinely. And that's, you know, again, Western audiences don't have a appreciation for his films. I'm not sure the broader global audience has an appreciation for his film. I mean, I don't see people. I mean, there's one person I know who does Czechoslovakian films every year. I happen to be on his show right now. <laughs> so like, I don't know. The broader film conversation is veering into, you know, you know, all the kind of the Prague, the Prague, some Prague spring stuff. Like, I don't know how many modern contemporary film I mean, again, Spencer, is you're a film professor. Like, how would you integrate something like, would you integrate Yasni into your, you've already kind of mentioned it, obviously. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I, I think, I think his work is really amazing and masterful. And like, so for instance, I, I know, I know when my, my blocking and staging class comes up this year, I'm going to be showing sequences at the least, if not the entire film in that class, because there's, there is that real beauty, but then also any like truly one might not think of this as a special effects movie precisely, but the special effects in it are incredible. And they're also very simple conceptually and trying to bring back this kind of conceptually simple kind of cinematic technique, you know, I think so essential because like one of the things that often goes wrong with, uh, with uses of CGI is not that CGI is bad. It's it's that it's not being as well thought through as like a lot of practical effects or stage magic effects have to be in order to in order to work. 
like the difference between Carpenter's The Thing and the remake of The Thing, where they they boasted that they were going to have all these practical effects, and it just ended up being a lot of CGI. The CGI in that movie is actually quite beautiful. It's just that like the shot-by-shot cinema of how the CGI gets used makes it far less effective than the practical work in the original version of the thing. I don't, I don't actually want to be mean to those CGI artists because I actually think they did really, really beautiful work. They're still artists. Like you said, they're still artists. Yes. You know, really important to, to recognize, but like some of these basic like meat and potatoes, how do you cut together a thing for the maximum effect? CGI is just another magic effect. And I think that there's a way in which that actually that effect and the whole idea of special effects is is not adequately respected. And seeing something like this is is incredible. And then, of course, for all my good countrymen, I can show that in any class. I mean, that's well, actually, my acting class that I'm going to be teaching this fall. I will I will definitely be showing performances from both of these films because masterful direction of of acting. One thing that I didn't mention earlier that I find really interesting in relationship between the children and the animals versus the adult actors. Obviously, the adult actors are all great in this movie. But there is, again, this magician quality to the almost to the well, not almost, but but the sort of enforced documentary qualities of the the stuff with the children and the stuff with animals in the movie. That like the kids and the animals cannot be directed in the way that the adults are. And there is something that he's capturing moment by moment, even in some of the in some of the bits where there'll be a child in the classroom that delivers a line in a way that's like really wooden, that even if you don't speak Czech, you know, oh, that's not a very good line reading. But nevertheless, the child remains like it's not just that it's a cute kid. It's sort of documentary quality of how the kids are being captured. Even a bad line reading is like a genuinely like charming kind of thing from 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 this child in, in, in a moment. And and I think there's also that beautiful scene with the guy at the beginning where the the like raven flies in his window and then he's got a guinea pig on the floor and then he's also got a cat and there's another raven in another place that's got all this white on it. And it it's just those the animal qualities in this, you're you're stuck. Animals are gonna do what they do. And what they do is just like magic for the camera once. And I think that also that's that's like a a thing that maybe it's a limitation that he's stuck with because he's going to work with kids and animals, which you're not supposed to do. But it also speaks to this theme, you know, of the film of, you know, truth and seeing truth. And that in a way, the children aligned with the cat, you know, are are vectors of truth, whereas all the performance and the hypocrisy and the lying and the, you know, the the infidelity, that's all going on in this like heightened performance, which is all really beautiful, you know, from from the adults. So it doesn't necessarily come down exactly. I mean, the in the fable of it, I think it's on the side of the kids and the cat, obviously. But the ways that the that the adults perform are put into contrast with that, and uh, and the performances are really, really beautiful and amazing. Is that one scene with the kids where it's he's got the cat and he's walking through the hallways of the school, and it's the only scene where the kids are in color, and there's two kids center shot in red, right? And then there's the kids in the center are great. Did you guys notice the children behind them yes. in the back of the shot just dancing? Doesn't even need any explanation, <laughs> right? I love that contrast as they're out hunting the cat. The men are hunting the cat and you got Menzik with this noisemaker and he's going along. And I'm 
guessing it's him or somebody has set up a taxidermied cat out in the field that they take a shot yeah. at. Yeah. That I looks just that. like the cat, too. Yeah. And then you <laughs> cut from that to all the kids and they're going through the fields and you've got the way that the wind is hitting the fields and the, the grain is moving. Oh, my God. It is just so gorgeous. And just this whole idea of urban versus rural and the animals versus the human. I mean, even earlier when it was Robert and the one from the circus and they're walking through these fields and, you know, holding on to our umbrella together and they hitch a ride on the back of the uh, cart with the hay and they look up and there's just all these birds up there. Just, you know, like you said, he's got so many animals in his place and just always associating him with the pastoral and with the natural. And whereas the rest of the men are just like sitting around drinking coffees with each other and talking about, you know, how, what varmints cats are. Again, I would have appreciated this movie a lot if I hadn't seen all my good countrymen, but to see Vlastimil Brodsky as this really sympathetic anti-authoritarian character versus his just like liquor supreme in the other movie <laughs> that like he dresses almost the same i think the only thing his character in this movie doesn't have that the other character in that movie has is outerwear he never wears like he's always like dressed yeah. a little bit more down than everybody else which also is interesting like everybody else will have like a suit jacket on or like a jacket on and he will be just like with a shirt normally like a white shirt and it's interesting because again like in that other movie in in all my good countrymen he is kind of the one of the bigger leaders of kind of that the the town's kind of authoritarian group and to see him here kind of 100 180 of that but and then they, they shoot him in a way that you understand that he's not the way he is in the other movie and he's not even like any of the other people like you said with the animals but then also the way he's dressed from the get-go he's talking about how important the natural world is he's not like some of the other characters in the movie whose opinion is changed throughout the movie or attempted to change or fake faking the change. And that's the other thing I appreciate. He's, he comes into the story the way that he is already. I appreciate that as well. But again, rather broadly brushed archetype, right? But that's this kind of story with the fairy tale. That's what you need. You need very broadly written characters because they're standing in for lots of us in a lot of ways. We have lots of proven kind of industrial structures for making commercial cinema. And that tends to go on the side of characters having distinct arcs and backstories and all, all this kind of stuff. And of course, that can be a great way to tell a story, nothing against it, but it really is refreshing to see a fully realized kind of approach to storytelling that just doesn't traffic in those ideas that we normally require. And that there, there are other ways of still telling a story and not failing, <laughs> you know, because the, the way that we often look at this is, oh, that's a failure to have this kind of flat character all the way through, but especially in such a collective kind of plot and an, you know, rather than an individualistic plot and telling an allegory and, and all this stuff, there are lots of other kinds of narrative pleasures that we can have while approaching different storytelling traditions on their own terms. If you guys like Brodsky, he, Menzel, and Sovak are all in, they're pretty much the three of the main leads in Tomorrow I'll Wake Up and Scald Myself with Tea. They all play Nazis in that one who are trying to go back in time and 
give Hitler the bomb, which is wait, fantastic. Wait, what? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a time travel comedy from 1977. It's fucking fantastic. You know what? Why do I even watch films from 2022 anymore? What is even... Why do I bother? <laughs> Can you please speak that title again? Because that might be the greatest title of all time. Tomorrow I'll wake up and scald myself with tea. This is incredible. Yes, yeah. And again, there's twins in it. One twin is very lascivious and the other... And he's working with the Nazis. The other twin is this really nice guy. The bad twin chokes on a on a biscuit or something. So the other twin takes over his role and flies the ship back to Nazi Germany, 1940 something or other, when the war's not going so well. And Hitler just wants nothing to do with these guys that uh, are coming back and saying that he's going to lose the war because uh, you know nothing could happen to Hitler. <laughs> I think you probably, I know you have to have mentioned it last time we did the Osney episode because, I mean, like you said, a lot of those actors were in that movie as well. And that's the thing. And I love Chris when we were talking on Facebook and you're just like, I recognize all these guys. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. It's, they're all very distinct because again, like this is, it's a very, I'm not going to say it's a small circle of people, but he is working with the Czechoslovakian actors of the time. And so unlike our country at the time it's not like it's a small pool of people but the talented people are the people that yasni's working with clearly the immensely talented people these are just incredible epic screen performances these are great great actors and i think it's like just one of those accidents of how things have shaken down you know like yes we're aware of the czech new wave and whatnot but just in terms of the provincial way that American cinephilia can work. Yeah, we have not been exposed to these actors in a way where we go, oh, right, like this, this is a Juliet, Juliet Messina level kind of comic performance. And yet that's, that's precisely what I see here. I mean, these actors, I'm assuming even now in Czech, in the, in, in Czechoslovakia, these are people that are important to the history of the film culture there. And so as an American seeing it with zero kind of point of reference, cause I'm not Czechoslovakian, I can see how good their performances are and make assumptions from then on as to the importance in the film industry, given that again, like we've mentioned, they show up countless times throughout Czechoslovakian film, even outside of Yasny, because Scald Myself with Tea is not a Yasny film. Correct. It's a Yendrik Polak film. So yeah, I, again, like you like you mentioned, you're seeing these people show up because yeah, they're talented, immensely talented. Definitely. Yeah, no, it was feels like there was about, I don't know, 12, 16, 20 actors, and you would see them show up just all over the place. Like I mean, All My Good Countrymen was a great film for that because there were a lot of people that you would see show up in other things just because it was such a large cast. But yeah, you'll see these guys pop up. I mean, Brodsky, my God, just all over the place and so many of these people. And then now that I know that Yanzi had worked with Menzik prior, I'll definitely be checking those films out as well, just because I'll watch anything that he's in. So there's a police officer at the end of the Cassandra cat, and he's a main character in Oh yeah. My Good Countryman, that actor, I think, Vaklov Babka. But I recognize him because I was like, oh, shit, he's he's in All My Good Countryman, too. But he I believe he's not the main, he's not the, not main, the main dude, no. but he's one of the one of the authoritarian flunkies. Yeah. Oh, it's just every, like half of the cast from that movie is here <laughs> like, <laughs> just doing something different. 
the main guy from All My Good Countrymen is also the main actor in The Ear, which is another fantastic film. And it's all about uh, surveillance and just people disappearing at night. And, you know, you're wondering what's going on, the police state. It's really good. Interesting piece of factual trivia. Jan Werrick was cast as Blofeld, uh, which is an interesting thing to learn. And I guess when he showed up to set, they were like, Ew, not the right choice. Poor benevolent Santa Claus is uh, is what they said. But yeah, he was going to be in You Only Live Twice. So he was actually cast by Harry Saltzman. Maybe if that had happened, I think maybe Western audiences might have had a little bit more of a easy entry into some of these other things. Because again, he's again, narrator of this movie. So and then you look at like, you know, a lot of the films that he worked on where he was both writer and actor. And then you get some of the other writers in here. And I'm trying to remember the second credited Yuri Bedicek, I think it is, and that he worked on so many other films that I enjoy as well. The Mysterious Castle in the Carpathians. He did a ton of animation stuff. He did dialogue for Siemens' fabulous Baron Munchausen. So it's just like this small-ish pool of talent that was able to work on so many different things for so many years. He also uh, did Lemonade Joe. I think he might have done the novel of Lemonade Joe. So another fantastic film where, again, you're going to see familiar faces. What a great name. Oh, yeah. Well, that's a czech western musical about this guy who's obsessed with what is it local cola he loves this this drink that he has and then is it is it like the coca-cola kid uh not necessarily he's definitely a lot different he's not trying to sell coca-cola though he definitely it's almost like his spinach like he's popeye it's told in a very interesting way seems like my kind of jam yeah. Oh, yeah. And for a lot of years, that was the only Oldrich Lipsky film that you could find in the U.S. There was a nice set put out by Facets years and years ago. I'm far from any kind of expert Czech cinema, but I have to say every time I watch a Czech film, particularly from uh, this this late 60s through early 70s kind of period, I am just really struck with the variety of thought and wildness and just like, you know, narrative freedom, because they definitely all hit different kinds of notes. You know, you, you can't just like lump in this film with daisies and go like, those are the same, you know, but 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 there is something about that filmmaking col- culture where it's just a lot more likely that this and the joke and daisies might all exist in the same little universe within a few years. And I've, I'm kind of like, oh, that's that's the kind of place where I want to live. That's the sort of film culture that I really want to be a part of because, wow, what an incredible like ferment. So what do they always say? Good films come out of bad times. I mean, yeah, I <laughs> the worst of times, one might even say. I keep waiting for that to happen in the United States of America. Don't, don't try to tell me that. All we did was we decided let's just steer really hard into torture porn and let's just do hostile and saw for like a decade. And that's what it was. Yeah, fine. I enjoyed the hell out of new Top Gun, but don't tell me that's like a good film coming out of some bad times. I don't know. The last action, the last true action hero is Tom yeah, yeah. Cruise. No, Tom Cruise. I mean, hats off. But he's He he's, truly is the Cassandra cat in a lot of He's ways. amazing. Tom Cruise is. I'm not picking on Tom Cruise. I'm just saying, <laughs> if that's the best we can do. <laughs> it's no All My Good Countrymen. No. No. <laughs> <laughs> not even close. 
And, and our Oscar winners aren't either, you know? That's so, fair. Also like, fair. I love the scene when they're in the back room and they're kind of deciding what to do with the cat. And there's a cat skeleton behind them, which is fantastic. Yes. And the way that they're cutting, they're not doing the 360 around the table. They're being very purposeful with the way that they're cutting from one side of the table to another, to another. So you have like four points of view that are happening with this table. And I really like that he doesn't care. If you're jumping from one side to the other, if you're breaking that 180 degree rule or not, you just kind of have to figure it out. And I really appreciate that the way that this is edited, there are many times where, I mean, going back to that scene in the field with Robert and and the girl, they just disappear. They just cut and they go away. And at first I was like, was that a jump cut? And I was like, no, this is just the way that this film is. This is a very magical film. And so you kind of have to just go with the way that it is edited, which I really like. And that scene at the table, the camera takes the place of the actors to the point where the actors are gone. Like the camera is there where the actor is and the actor is gone, which is very weird to do. It further reinforces putting you in that position, in that scene, giving you that weird intimate closeness that, again, this movie really traffics in. It's just like putting you in the position of being one of the townspeople or I guess a fly on the wall. But that that intimate like closeness with the camera is... Hard to do successfully. And again, Yasni just, he hits it every time. And he does interesting things with it every time he's doing it. So it's not just the same gag over and over again. It's it's a different gag or a different technique or a different way of doing it almost every time you see it. Within the narrative of this film, so tied into the movie's idea of, of truth, sort of pitting the camera against the taxidermy. One way of capturing truth is to capture with the the movie camera the bird in motion you know later paying that uh, that idea of the taxidermy off with the taxidermied cat that they have to like rehearse the idea of going after this like dead fixed cat if they're going to ha- have any hope of killing the real living cat uh, that that is is being captured uh, you know on film throughout it and and you know okay I'll belabor I'll go ahead the the opening credits against against this strange like wooden background for all the credits appearing and it's of course the children's desks and we get that later scene so this is a kind of thing where yasni is pulling the the kubrick move from the beginning of 2001 of giving you this long overture of just a big black rectangle in front of you and then the rectangle arrives and people see things inside of it and yasni does exactly the same sort of trick you know totally on his own i'm not uh, there's there's no reason for the cross fertilization here but this this idea of Connecting that to these little movies that the students watch before they make their own thing, I think is it's like really strong and it's there, you know, movies as a way of seeing the world uh, and that the magic and all the magic tricks are very much part of that. And again, sort of speaking to a line that comes up where where somebody says truth is, you know, science. Imagination is unscientific. I want facts. You know, Yasni is getting into a very unscientific, but also very accurate sort of truth with a particular kind of tool. Well, and I am a huge fan of that juxtaposition of like the reality through the eyepiece versus the reality when you remove the eyepiece. And how can you what is reality when you're because, you know, we always talk about this on my show when you're watching something anywhere, for the most part, it's edited, which means somebody had a hand in presenting it to you the way that they want you to see it. And you can never even in like a again, terrible example, but even in like a show like, say, Ghost Adventures or something like that, 
where they're presenting something to you, they're doing it in a way that there's intent behind it. And you can never lose sight of that. I feel like, at least as a film goer, you can't lose sight of what you're seeing, the way it's being presented to you, because it's all intentional. And it's all, in in intent is being given to you and you need to figure out a way to receive it. And Yasni, again, his intent is, I feel like he touches on that idea of seeing through the lens of the camera and reality, reality being subjective or film reality versus actual reality. He touches on it a little bit. I wish he had touched on it more because that's something that I am really interested in personally, but I like that he kind of, he touches on it a little bit, but I like that idea of what is reality, especially when reality can be, like we've said, edited or changed by authoritarians like we see in this film. I love the shots. We've got Oliver back on the, his perch and he's looking out and he sees all the kids and they're doing their paintings of the cats on the roof. And we'll get those that roof shot again later on. That is fantastic. And then that they actually have a cat on the street, the entire street is taken up with this image of a cat is wonderful. And then I love we go back into the school and everything seems to be okay. The world is going all right. And we've got the headmaster coming down the hall and he's like straightening the flowers that the one kid's carrying. They've all got their little red young pioneers handkerchiefs around their necks and stuff. And he opens up that door into Robert's classroom and Robert's just sitting there with no kids and they pan over and you have that message, you know, you know, we're tired of our teacher and our cat being mistreated. We're leaving. And I'm just like, yes. And then the whole rest of the thing, funny because it's very Pied Piper of Hamlin at this point because all the children just suddenly go missing, but they're going missing on their own. It's not because the Pied Piper has led them astray and led them out of the, the city for not paying him. They're just like, no, we're tired of this. We're out of here. And I love how the children raise up and they're just like, yeah, no, we're, we're taking our cat and we're leaving. Fuck you guys. We went, they, they went and hung out with the Castilian. What a great title, Castilian. The castle keeper. I love that that's where they go. They go into his castle and that's and that's where they're hiding. I love that. Again, like that's the assumption would be that they would be out in nature where they kind of are most of the time. But they go with Oliva up into the uh, the, the parapet, I guess, at the top of the, the castle. It's great. I don't know. Again, I don't know if there is any kind of meaning to it, but they keep showing the paintings and the drawings that the children are making of the cat. And it's interesting to see all the different interpretations and some of them have glasses on and some of them don't, which I find to be very interesting. I don't, again, I'm not, maybe it's just a tacit choice by the director to show him that way, but I wonder like if he's driving at anything with that, my kind of interpretation is everybody interprets this cat differently, which I think ultimately is the message of art in a lot of ways is nobody's interpretation is incorrect. Everybody's entitled to their own interpretation, but I like that they show all of these images of the cat. And that's kind of like this kind of like rallying cry for the children of the town that they're like, the cat is important. Like, and we are going to push this as far as we can with that, which I appreciate. Again, like finding something to rally around and using it as your point of reference, I think is an interesting way of doing it, especially when it's revealing the truths of the town, as it were. I love uh, the shots of the parents. Again, now they went from hunting the cat to now they're hunting the kids. And there's an image of them all standing in this clearing in a forest. And you've got the fog kind of in the trees and all of the parents standing there and they are yelling people's names very loudly. And that kind of gets echoed later on when they have the radio that's going to broadcast out. And 
there's even a moment when their headmaster is saying some stuff that's kind of inappropriate. I kept waiting for him to say, like, I'm going to play this town like a harp from hell. And I like the reveal at the end that he's a chameleon. That's the kind of the I guess the big reveal at the climax of the film is he is a emotional chameleon. Is that, that's my my interpretation, right? Because she says, like, he's a chameleon, but like what? what because he's he then leaves the town because of it. And that's what he's trying to hide. I, I guess, is that what he's trying to prevent from coming out throughout the entirety of the movie? Because he hides a bunch of times when the cat comes out. Is that he knows he's a chameleon throughout? Which I really appreciate, because again, I think it has something to say about authoritarianism as a whole. As they present themselves one way, but they are clearly, clearly another. Well, yeah, that sense of the moving target of authoritarianism, that whatever is convenient or we want right now to, you know, uphold the authority as witnessed so many, you know, crazy recent events and that I, you know, barely even need to invoke here. That's what I was getting. It's like, we see it now. Like, I really don't have to mention specifics. Like, it might be just, oh, it's, yeah, it's yeah. No, we're troubling. Gonna, Mike, we're not going to get you more complaints about the politics talk on your You show. do that all alone. You do that good enough on your own. <laughs> you don't need our help. <laughs> but but yeah, you know that there is that sense of the, yeah, the chameleon quality of authoritarianism that it's going to become anything that it needs to be at the given moment. They're actually for all all that it wants this center, there's no center. You can never grab onto a character like that. He's always going to slip out of your grasp. But all, all the more reason why he wants everybody else to be, you know, taxidermied. Yeah, he loves his taxidermy. Oh, he sure does. Yeah. When you get to see his whole menagerie of all the birds and the woman, like, polishing their eyes and stuff, dusting off all the dead birds that he's got. Uh, compare that to the classroom where the kids have living mouse, a living hamster, a living turtle. It's like, you know, oh, we're, we're using this as our inspiration for our drawings. They're like, no, no, here's this dead stork. Use this as your inspiration. And they're like, this doesn't work for us. You know, we, we need something alive. And I love that connection to the natural world. And I love that juxtaposition. I really, I really do. Cause like putting the kind of the antagonist of the film as against nature, I think is always very smart. Cause again, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of a nature story as I'm sure we all are. So I like, again, I, I like those kind of themes because they were, they were kind of there in all my good countrymen, but this movie just like leans on them. And that's the kind of central tenant of the movie because authoritarianism is industrialism in this movie, I guess is kind of the one-to-one that they're making or the town, I guess, as a whole is the kind of author- authoritarianism. And then the, the nature isn't and the kids. I, I don't know. I'm rambling the truth of motion, the truth of process rather than like a dead thing, you know, like not to go down too much philosophical road, but I do think that the movie really invites, invites that. And moreover is like dramatizing. Like one of the things that I really love about sort of narrative uh, as a means of putting across uh, philosophy is that there's a wonderful complexity of setting up these kind of two ideas of truth at the beginning and then watching how they play out through this allegory rather than like just having a treatise that would break it down into this is what it has to be. There's, there's even this kind of, um, that even for instance, the truth about the authoritarian who seems to want things to be one way, the truth about him is that he's also every which way. There's something like really, really beautiful about the complexity of narrativizing this, this kind of philosophical dialogue, you know, throughout, throughout a film that, um, is, you know, that is, that is a tradition, you know, of, of drama and of 
fairy tales and, and folk narratives, but really wonderful to see how it's played out here through cinema and really thinking about all the mechanisms of it at the same time, working at a very, very high level. I love towards the end when they're, the kids are missing and they're just looking for somebody to, to blame. And they're just like, you know, should it be Robert? Should it be Vladimir Menzik? Like, who's going to take the blame for all this stuff? And again, you've got nature coming in there too. The sudden rainstorm that happens. Yeah. As and, God should strike me down if I don't speak the truth. Oh, and then bang, it happens. I yeah. love it. Yes. I and the rain falls he was, on all of them. I thought he was dead. I was like, damn, okay. Like that movie just oh, magical realism is in full swing here. Like, all right. It reminded me of Monty Python meaning of life. May God strike me down. Was, and then uh, Robert coming in with that red umbrella again, tying him into the woman. And then he finally makes his appeal on the radio and just, you know, I don't think his heart's really into it, but you know, he's, <laughs> he's going to do it because he's got everybody on top of his head at this point, breathing down his neck to get those kids back. <laughs> I like all the, 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 the adults. I'll, I, you're ashamed of me. I'll never do that again. I will be the best worker in town. It's like, yes, we, are we, that's the thing. Like I didn't believe any of it. No, no. Which is great. Cause it all seems so fake. I feel, and I feel like that's Yasni's intent, obviously is for us to understand like, this is 100% a put on like, these people are never going to change. Well, this whole thing too, where it's like, oh, you're a good communist. How fake is that? You know? Right. Right. <laughs> oh yeah. You're the person that says you'll always uh, work harder. You know, you're you're the horse from Animal Farm. Yeah, I don't believe you. Yeah, that absurdity is 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 really beautiful. And and another, uh, you know, the, the like the use the use of the absurd and of that kind of beautiful irony that isn't exactly satire. But, you know, that runs throughout so much of the Czech artwork of that time. Really beautiful. I love when he finally brings back the cat. Everybody in the room leaves because it's like they don't want anybody to know what or who they really are. You know, that was what caused the riot almost earlier on in the film is just this whole thing of we don't want people seeing what's inside of us, you know, and it's very much you have to stay guarded. You have to stay hidden, especially in this society where you never know when those sacred police are going to be taking their notes and be like, oh, he showed up as a red. Oh, he's a purple. He's a gray. So we need to you know, put him away for a little bit here. Make him right. There's probably a Serbian death camp somewhere with a bunch of people who would show up red if the cat were to come. I mean, it's that, it's that, it's that, that's the expectation, right? I mean. Well, but again, back to the absurdity and the irony, it makes for a good fable, but the fable isn't the la isn't a kind of last word. It's not right. going to fix it or make it dead. It's like, there's a recognition that while the truth can set you free, it can also bring everything down around you because people cannot deal with it. You know, that they're, there's a certain amount of artifice that's necessary in the everyday while also recognizing that like that could be a terrible thing. So it's, um, yeah, it's a really, really fantastic movie. That's those broad themes of Yasni's work that I think just really resonate is like, yeah, like what is truth? Ultimately, what is truth? We've talked about truth through cinema and then you can't even get truth in reality because people refuse to let their true nature ever be seen. And that the cat is the kind of, democratizing presence in the film to be like, here's everybody out in the open, warts and all, too bad. You notice in the original story that Oliva tells, who kills the cat? It's the non-color presenting people. In this story, it's all the purple and yellow, and I guess chameleons that are like all 
really pent up and angry at the cat. It's an interesting kind of flip of the story. Even What do you guys think about the way that this ends, the way that Robert doesn't get the girl? It's really interesting in relationship to the one positive color being love that, yeah, he doesn't get the girl out of this movie that's very clearly celebrating love. It, it does carry through this idea that, that like love kind of is the answer within all these tensions of the truth and the lies and everything. I don't know. I find it, um, I don't fully understand it, I will say, but I like not fully understanding why they don't make it together because it's, this is not a realistic story where I'm like, oh, they could never work because they're not actually compatible. This being like more of the, the allegorical, slightly cartoonish uh, sort of level of characterization, it doesn't exactly have that and it would be easy to leave them in love at the end. But I think it's it's that little bit of absurdism, that recognition that it doesn't all come out exactly right just because you've learned a lesson, if that if that makes sense. I appreciate that it's not this like, oh, and then he goes on to spread the word of love with the, the woman and her cat. Like, no, I like that it's just like, nah, and then she just goes on to whatever next town right. needs this. Because that's, I mean, really, like that's kind of the message, right? Is like, She's going to go on and now he has to go back and figure out how to live in this world where everything is kind of falling apart. Cause I don't know what happens to the town after this. I mean, that's the kind of question. If he, if Robert leaves, I think Robert is now kind of the de facto leader of the town as it were. So my interpretation at the end is like, he has kind of placed himself in a position of like taking over after the other, cause the other guy leaves, I guess. So I, I don't know, like I could see this ending going either way. I think it's more impactful for Yazi to say this happened in this town and now the town has to deal with it. And you can't just leave. You're not able, you're not allowed to just leave the problem. You have to stay and work through it. And I, I kind of appreciate that because it it does kind of undercut the magical fairy taleness of the of the story. I guess also with the fairy taleness of the story, a lot of the ways that those stories work is to put the characters through a kind of magically contrived crisis of, of one means or another, and then leave them back. You know, yes, we, we know the happily ever after kind of thing, but, but kind of leave them back again to deal with the implications. Having the magical character move on at the end, I guess, makes, makes a kind of sense of this. Like the magical character can't necessarily be part of the, the established world. The magical character's purpose is to come in and upend things, change them but then put people back to dealing with their their everyday world and and as she moves on archetypally but that, yeah it's really it is an interesting ending mike what were you thinking since you did ask us about it what's your what's in your head he is chasing after her they go through the tunnel uh which is kind of fascinating the way that the guys duck down i was like is this a special effect but i guess they just duck down in the right way and there's that shot and i guess it might be of her but like a face and she closes her eyes and just kind of like this is the end of the chapter i think he's there for the kids i think that after all is said and done that he's really there to lead this next generation these third graders that he has and i think that's really his purpose even more than finding his true love like his real love is teaching and helping out these kids and the way that they all come running out at the end with their cat pictures they're all the next generation they're the ones that'll be the truth tellers selflessness really like yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. i mean and in a lot of ways like 
the character of Robert throughout the film is the one who's put upon by everybody. He tries to go and save the cat and then he gets captured. They have to bring him back to get the kids back. You know, he's the one who's ostracized by the, the headmaster because he tells him to leave, quit. You know, you're fired. How dare you know, even within the first five minutes, of the movie's like, how dare you confront me as a murderer in mm-hmm. front of the entire town? Yeah. And that's, you know, Robert being the one left at the end, kind of, I guess, holding the bag makes sense. Because like you said, Mike and Spencer, like him going on to shape the minds and the hearts of these children who are going to take over, who are, you know, now these kids would be in their like 70s and 80s at this point. But they're the ones who helped lead these countries out of as much as they are realistically now uh, out of that authoritarian culture that they were under for, you know, up until the mid 90s, early 90s. even. Yeah. So. yeah. I think it's an important message that there do need to be people still there to because you can't just do it on your own. Like there need to there do need to be people part of the community willing to stand up and say, I can help. I want to help. I'm willing to put myself on the line for this. It's interesting because we've been talking a lot lately about Milos Forman, and I know that he got a lot of flack because of him leaving and going and having this career outside of Czechoslovakia. I would say that Yanzi left as well, but I don't think it was as glorious as the departure <laughs> of, of Foreman. Not that he kind of had to leave in the middle of the night as well, but it really feels like Yanzi was just like, yeah, that's it. Pack up the bags. I'm not under Novotny's protection anymore. We got to go. And he left a lot of stuff and a lot of people behind. And I think he always felt that pain in his heart rather than, you know, he didn't go off and become the multi Oscar winner like a Milos Forman. He was, you know, lucky to be making German sci fi films and stuff. I mean, great movies, yes, but, you know, he wasn't able to have that same career as he had in Czechoslovakia. On one level, I want to wish a director like this every possible success and notoriety. But I would also have to say that given the way that this movie works and given the ending, given the way that all my good countrymen works. I would hate to see this sensibility Hollywoodized because part of what's so exciting about these films is like not doing the Hollywood thing. I mean, for instance, here, the ending, it's it's like, you know, I'm so my mind is so inhabited by ideas of the Hollywood ending that just as we've talked through this, I'm kind of like, oh, right. The Hollywood ending is that like, not only do you solve the problem, but you get the girl and you also get a lot of money. And in this case, it's like, and for instance, there are great Hollywood movies that parody that, like the ending of The Player, where it's like shoving that in your face and going, this is a horrible kind of ending for you to believe in. But like that's, but but actually, we don't tend to get a lot of American movies that move in the opposite direction that just doesn't care about that. And something that's really beautiful about this kind of happy ending that, you know, puzzles me at first, and I got to work through all this archetypal stuff to arrive there is simply going, no, they solved the problem and these are the terms and this is the collective and here's the town and they did it. And it's not about rewarding one character with the girl and the money and all the things that are supposed to fall upon a happy ending because I've, I'm conditioned to think so. It, realistically, it's a happy ending, but the amount of work and toil and sweat and everything that happens after this with his character and those kids. And there will still be pushback from the community. Yeah. Uh, it's that it's, you know, it's, it's a happy ending in as much as the authoritarian figure has been run out of town. 
And Robert now may be able to actually do something substantive to teach the children of the town and maybe hopefully over time shape this community into something a little bit more willing to not have a boot on top of it constantly and be okay with that. That's a happy ending, but it's a happy ending that has to be worked for. It's not a happy ending that's immediate. And I think that immediate gratification is the thing that Western audiences tend to struggle with because you don't need that. I don't need that. That's not how, and I know that, you know, film is not meant to be reality, but when you're a naturalistic director like Yasni is, leaning on the reality of the world, I think is more important than giving, give the people what they want. Maybe don't. And when you don't, this is what you get. Because yeah, this is a happy ending, but it's also a real ending. It's real. It's rooted in reality, even if this movie wanders into the magical quite often. It still is grounded in that reality of the premise of the movie. Take the cat out of it. The premise of the movie is still dealing with an authoritarian regime. Would it be nice if he ran off with the girl? Sure. But like that undercuts the emotional weight of those kids that have gone to bat for him. So now he has to go to bat for, and he goes to bat for them multiple times throughout the movie. But you see them go to bat for him and it's like, what is, is he really going to leave them now that they've like done all this ostensibly for him? So real quick, before we uh, take a break and play preview for next week's show, I just wanted to give a little bit of IMDb trivia here. Now, be careful. This is a spoiler on this one. There is a cat and he wears sunglasses. That's IMDb trivia. That's IMDb trivia. (laughs) (laughs) Movie did not disappoint. (laughs) I love it. I love it. All right, guys, let's go ahead and take a break. And we're going to play preview for next week's show right after these brief messages. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I don't want to hear about any problems, Don. Just as long as we have a working weapon by the end of June. I haven't had a working weapon since Korea. (laughs) When the military runs short on brains, they go hunting at Pacific Tech, an exclusive institution for outstanding intellects, where the superstar of smarts is Chris Knight. You have a jacuzzi? Absolutely. His hobbies violate the laws of gravity. What are you doing out there? Floating, sir. His homework could win a Nobel Prize. He's one of the ten finest minds in the country. And his IQ is higher than most people can count. I can't stand it. Have you ever seen a body like this before in your life? She happens to be my daughter. Oh, well, then I guess you have. But when Chris makes the scientific discovery of the century, 
You did it. His classmates want the credit. You're not number one around here anymore. His professor wants the publicity. Hi. That's it. And the military wants to use his discovery as the ultimate weapon. This is not good. So Chris is about to turn getting even into a science. And show them. Roger. Open Bombay doors. They should never try to outsmart. A real genius. That's right, we'll be back next week with a little bit of a break from our regularly regular program as we discuss real genius. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-host Chris and Spencer. So, Spencer, what is happening with you, sir? I'm about to go back to school, so I'm I'm kind of making it to the end of my summer, and I'm trying to finish a movie, and so it's a busy time. And Chris, what about you? It's podcasting, cstashu.com. That's my link tree. Mike and I work on all kinds of stuff. A lot of 70s police TV shows. I don't know why. We watch them a lot. And then uh, Rankin and Bass puppetry. So, you know, a weird mix of things. Are you doing any episodes on fish? Because that's always one of my favorite uh weird 70s TV police shows. You know we do a Barney Miller show, right? Of course. I mean, how can you not? We Uh, have not done fish yet, and I don't know if ever. (laughs) I feel like now now we have to. I mean, we've we've talked about it, but like the, the problem with fish is it's like impossible to find. Yeah, season one, no problem. Season two, little tougher. Like a lot tougher. But man, Barney Miller, that's like, what I don't care. That's one of the greatest two or three TV shows that's ever existed. Agreed. Oh, yes. Yeah, agreed. Miller is the best. Well, thank you so much, guys, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Thanks especially to our Patreon community. If you want to join the community, visit patreon.com slash projection booth. Every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the world. Don't bother asking for explanation, she'll just tell you the 
Stay in the year of the kind. 